Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. I hope that you have been blessed already this morning. I have. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're studying from. I think this is our fourth installment in 1 John, out of 1 John. Last Sunday, we studied in uh, chapter 2 through verse 11. And today, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 2. And the major focus of this message is love not the world. What does John mean when he tells us not to love the world? Uh, What's he talking about? How do we obey this? But before we get to that part, uh, we we need to look at verses 12 through 14 in 1 John chapter 2. So I'll start reading at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And I'm reading from the ESV. I usually forget to say which translation I'm reading from, but there you have it. So, just a few comments on this first little passage. It's, it's not our main focus this morning, but this is a passage that has kind of puzzled a lot of people over the years uh, because if you take a close look at it, it's, it's a little odd. Uh, John repeats himself Almost exactly, but not quite, and with enough differences for you to notice the differences and wonder why they're different, and we don't really know why. Uh, there are a few things that we can conclude about this, about what he's saying. He is talking about different levels of spirituality, I believe. He's talking about different levels of spiritual maturity. Uh, he says the children have been, have been forgiven for his name's sake. Of course, this is true of the, of the young men and the fathers that he talks about later. But these are probably people who are new in the faith. They could be 10-year-olds. They could be 40-year-olds. They're children in the faith, but they have been forgiven. And then there's the young men. They are strong and overcomers. They're no longer spiritual babies. It says that um, they know God's Word. They've become strong warriors in the kingdom. And God can do things with them that He couldn't do with the children. And then there's the fathers. Well, they certainly have been forgiven too. And they know the Word. They're also overcomers. But the one thing that's said about them that's not said about the other groups is you know Him who is from the beginning. And I think that's talking about a deep relationship. We talked about this last Sunday that that when John uses the word knowing God, he's talking about more than just a head knowledge, but but a deep relationship with God. And that's what's being said about these fathers. John is being encouraging. And uh, he just finished up some uh, pretty stern teaching about not loving, uh, about needing to love your brothers. He's going to follow up with some fairly strong teaching about not loving the world. But right in the middle here, he's putting in some very encouraging verses. And we should be encouraged this morning because um, no matter where we're at, what level of spiritual maturity we're at, as a Christian, we do have a lot going for us. 
we're incredibly blessed. And we should be challenged to grow spiritually. Um, if, if you know you're a spiritual child, then grow in your knowledge of the Word. If, if you're a young man in the faith, grow in your knowledge of God. And, and, if, you think, and if you think you're a spiritual father, maybe uh, grow in humility. I don't know. I'm sure there's always growth to be had wherever you're at. Let's not remain children or even young men. Let's keep pressing on. And now we get to, to verse 15. Love not the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, earlier in chapter 2, he said, love your brothers. And now he's saying, don't love the world. Brian Yoder preached a, an excellent message on this subject back in May. If you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to check it out. You can, you can get it on the church website, BMC Gladys. Thanks to Eldon. Um, it's a very good message. And in that sermon, one of the things he emphasized at the start is that not loving the world is a natural outcome of the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all our heart. You can't have the one commandment without the other. Now, what exactly does John mean when he says, don't love the world? What is he saying that we are not supposed to love? So let's see if we can figure out what John means when he says world. The term world is used different ways in the New Testament. Okay, this might sound familiar to some of you. We talked about this a lot back in uh, whenever we, we had the discussion on limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. We talked about the meaning of the word world. Often the word world simply means the inhabitants of the earth, the people in the world, the people on earth. Well, I think you'll notice that John probably doesn't mean that in this case because uh, Jesus died for the inhabitants of the earth. He loved them, and we're supposed to be like Jesus and love them too. So he's not talking about just the inhabitants of the earth. It means something else. Some New Testament writers use the term world when they're talking about the anti-God system that is in our society. And John especially uses it that way. Talking about false prophets in 1 John 4, verse 5, he says, they are from the world. Now, everyone's from the literal world, right? But these guys are from a different world. They are from the world. No, he's, uh, I'm sorry. They speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And then 1 John 5, verse 4, explaining why God's commandments are actually not burdensome. It says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So the world is something that needs to be overcome. It's anti-God. And in John 8, Verse 23, responding to the Jews, wondering if Jesus was going to kill himself, he said, you are from, a, from below, I am from above, you are of the world, I am not of this world. And then in John 15, of course, this is the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, 
But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So based on these verses I just read and, and the, um, the passage that we have today about not loving the world, there are six things that we can pretty quickly pick out about this world John's talking about. First of all, it is anti-God. It's against God. It hates God and his people. That's number one. Number two, it's something you can be a member of. In fact, you're either a member of it or you're not. Number three, it's filled with evil desires, the same ones that led to the fall. We'll look at that in a minute. And verse four, I'm sorry, number four, everything, my, my numbers don't, equi- don't equate to verses. Number four, everything is in it is not from the Father. All that is in the world, it says, is not from the Father. Number five, it's going to pass away. It's not going to last. It's going to be destroyed someday. And then number six, it is attractive. We need to be on guard against loving it. So what would be a good definition for this thing we're talking about? Charles Ellicott, an Anglican theologian um, from the 18th century. And actually, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. I have no idea. I'm pretty sure about the Charles part, but not Ellicott. He had this to say in his commentary. He says... um, The world is the moral order which is antagonistic to God. All such inventions, plans, customs, thoughts, and estimates of mankind that are not in harmony with the will and purpose of God. And that's a a good definition. Um, If I were going to put it in my words, I would say it's the anti-God system that's designed to serve the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So let's review what John's saying. There is a definite anti-God system or culture present in our society that's focused on feeding these evil desires. And it's attractive, and we must not fall in love with it. If you do, you don't love God. So pay attention. You're not allowed to love the world. Um... You're not allowed to love the world even in the smallest degree. You see, it's okay to love your mom. That is perfectly fine. You should, in fact, love your mom. But love God even more. But um, you can't say the same thing about the world. It's not okay to love the world but love God more. It just doesn't work. You can't love the world at all. In fact, James says this. It's not okay to even be a friend of the world. In James 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is, an, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we should be concerned about this. We should be concerned about loving the world, and we should be worried about worldly tendencies. An attraction to the world, you know, maybe that doesn't equal love, But you know how it works. Attraction can lead to courtship, which can can lead to marriage. So we should be concerned about an attraction to the world. Okay, what's up with these three desires that John talks about? We've defined, uh, somewhat loosely, we've defined the word world here. Let's take a, a closer look at what it contains. John says, 
that the world is represented by three desires. And everything in, in the world is a system built, designed to serve those three desires, to feed them. And, and the Greek word here in the ESV that's translated desire is, um, in a lot of other translations, would be tra uh, translated lust. And it, the Greek word is um, referring to something that is excessive. And so I think lust is a pretty good word that, that maybe should be used here. The lust of the flesh. What's that? Well, that's, that's what your body wants. The lust of the eyes. You see it, you would like to own it. You would like to have it. It's basically, it's covetousness. The pride of life. You want people to think you're pretty awesome. That's the pride of life. Desire to be lifted up above others. And, and all of these desires were involved in the first sin. Uh, you can see this pretty easily here in Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, so her body said, that looks really good. Looks a lot better than those boring pear trees I've been eating from. And then it says, and that it was a delight to the eyes. So it's, it's beautiful. I would just love to, you know, I've got to have some of its fruit. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So I'll be like a god if I eat this fruit. And she did. She took it of its fruit and ate. Uh, these three lusts are like three evil rulers that would like to control your life. And I think... I think this is true, that, that any sin that we commit in one way or another is derived from one of these three lusts, maybe all of them. And uh, so when you sin, in some way, you are aligning yourself with the world's philosophy, with the world. doesn't mean that you automatically love the world when you sin. Hopefully you've just stumbled and you're going to get back up and keep walking with God, and that's where your real allegiance is. But a pattern of obeying these lusts can make you a servant to them. They become your master. And then you become one who loves the world. Now John isn't just warning about these three lusts and saying, oh, don't sin. Don't sin, that's bad. He's, he's also talking about the system that's dedicated to feeding these three lusts. Now, they're, they're very bound together, but they're not exactly the same thing. And you'll notice that he talks about them a little bit differently. He says that the three lusts are in the world, and then he says, the world is going to pass away and its lusts are going to pass away with it. So don't fall for these lusts and don't fall for the system bent on feeding them. What does it mean to love the world? Love is a choice. And Brian pointed out that the, that the word here, the Greek word that's being used here is agape, love. And that is, that's, the emphasis is on behavior and not feeling. Last Sunday, we looked at the verse that commands us to love each other. And in 1 John 3.18, it says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And guess what? That command is actually useful for us in looking at this verse and how we should not love the world. Because uh, we shouldn't just be saying, Oh, I don't love the world. Um, I hate the world. It's awful. It's wicked. You know, talking about how much we don't love the world. But in the meantime, we behave as though we love the world. That, that, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Let's make sure that we don't love the world in our behavior. Okay? 
And so I want to try to get somewhat practical here, and I hope I can do that and still uh, be accurate and, and be doing these verses justice. What, what can loving the world look like? I think we've got two categories of things to talk about. There's, on the one hand, we've got some things that are pretty clearly anti-God, and there's some other things that, are, um, that we pretty much don't have a choice, but we need to be involved in, but the world is also very tightly uh, has its philosophy very tightly mingled in with it, and we need to watch out how we involve ourselves with them. So for the first category, I'm talking about the things that are anti-God, and, and when we become a consumer of an anti-God product, uh, we're in danger. There are some products in our society, products, I'm using that word very loosely, I don't necessarily mean things you buy off the shelf, but there are some products of our society that are produced mainly for the purpose of serving one of these three lusts. I think you'd agree with me. And these things in themselves mainly don't have that much of a legitimate use. It's not like you have to have that thing or use that thing. But sometimes Christians will become consumers of these products, even though there are healthier alternatives out there. And why would we? Well, it's a good question. It's a good question. Why, why consume these these products. And you can, you can make up this list as easily as I can, and most of it's media-related um, or entertainment-related, whether it's um, filthy books, bad music, um, questionable movies, uh, just environments that are filled with temptation. We don't have to be consumers of this. We shouldn't be. And we should ask ourselves, if we are, what exactly is going on here? I don't see how you can consume something that is mostly anti-God and bent on serving these three lusts and consume it and appreciate it and um, not be falling into an attraction to the world. It, it doesn't add up. That's how people love the world. When they, are, they become consumers of anti-God products and they, they appreciate them. And remember... Like I said already, it's not what you say that matters so much, although what you say does matter, but, but when it comes to love, behavior, how you behave, matters a lot. Okay, then there's, some, there's this, other, this other group of things that's a little less obvious, that you know, they have, there's some legitimate uses there, and um, there are legitimate uses, but they're closely tied to worldly philosophy, and in using this other category of things, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the world's philosophy that, that may be driving them. And let me give you some illustrations. I get Bloomberg Business Week every week, okay? Business Week. And uh, every so often, every third or fourth issue, there's a style guide published in the back that tells you what you ought to wear at work. Very helpful. Um, here's an example of one. This is a fall... Fashion. So everybody pay attention. Here's your fall fashion style guide. This is what you ought to wear for work. And um, so let me read this section here that tells you, that talks about layer with a, with a blazer. It says, a long ribbed sweater is great for playing with texture and proportion. It pairs terrifically under a tailored jacket on a cool day. Guys, 
stick with a classic button-down. And then it actually tells you exactly uh, what you need to buy here to have this outfit. So this guy here, uh, who has the, uh, the fancy portfolio there in his hand, he has, okay, so here's the thing with, with luxury items. They, they seem to come in, in words that are unpronounceable. Um, okay, I mean, it looks like frame venued, but it's probably frame vino or something. Uh, those are trousers, I guess, $219 pants. Um, then he's wearing a Saturday's New York City shirt, which is $120. Uh, you can get the Canali jacket, which is $23.95. No sense in there. No sense in that number, I mean. Um, and then he's this little portfolio, that was $325. And then the shoes are $1465. Okay, $1,400 pair of shoes there. So if, if I went out and bought all of these items, and uh, you know it's got the websites and everything where you can go buy these things and wore them to liberty, um, I would definitely, definitely get comments. Uh, people would wonder what happened to me. They'd probably fall over. Um, they would be impressed. I would be impressed. And and really, I mean, what exactly is wrong with this with this look? I mean, it's it's definitely sharp. Uh, it's modest. No, no clear pro problems here with this with his appearance here of this fella. Um, but I would have to wonder what exactly what exactly am I doing here? Uh, why am I following this style guide? Is it really necessary? Did I do that for the glory of God? Or maybe did I do it for the glory of Galen? Would Jesus have done this? Am I actually doing this because I want people to notice me and make comments and think, wow, Galen, you know, I don't know what came over him this fall, uh, but he is a sharp dresser. I mean, he's classy. He, he has an eye for style. And uh, I think we should promote him. So this is starting to sound pretty good. See, I don't know that I could, I could do that, uh, at least not more, more than a few times, without falling in love with the world. Definitely couldn't do it without going broke. But, um, or at least flirting with the world. If I'm doing it to impress people, then I'm buying in with the world's philosophy. I think you would agree with me. It's not God's philosophy. If I'm doing it to impress people and lift myself up and, and get people to admire me in the way I dress, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be using the clothing industry because or the fashion industry, to be able to dress appropriately for work or for whatever uh, situation you're in. But it's another thing to try to stand out and impress people. Because then, then it becomes an ends in itself. And that's, I think that's when the, the flag should go up in our, in our minds and something becomes an ends in itself instead of a means to an ends. And it, this guy here, I mean, I'm sorry, that's probably like... Uh, $4,000 worth of clothes for one outfit there. And that is a far cry from, you know, what Paul said, if we have food and clothing, let us be content. And this can go for so many other areas of our lives. It can go for car shopping, which is, an, which is a very safe area. I'm kind of sticking to safe areas here for me, which isn't fair at all. But uh, this is a safe area for me because I, I just bought a really old minivan. Um, but 
you know, when you're car shopping, and this happened to me when I was looking for a van, you do kind of think about, at least I do, what are people going to think of you when you pull into the parking lot? Not necessarily here at church, just wherever you're going. What are people going to think of you when you, when you come out of that vehicle? And I especially would think about it if, if there's going to be a reunion of some kind or you meet a bunch of old friends. What are they going to think after these many years have passed and here comes Gail and getting out of this old minivan and, um, you know, what happened to him? You know, that, that can be kind of... Um, you can think about those things, and you can think about them too much. Um, it's okay to have a nice car, totally fine. But it's not okay to um, be to, to have impressing your peers be a major priority when you're when you're car shopping. I mean, that's called the pride of life. It's a pattern of the world. And you embrace it when you start thinking that way and make choices based on it. You are serving it. And this can go for other kinds of shopping, many other areas. It can go for how you um, go about making money. It can go for keeping yourself in shape physically. It can go for how, you, how much you follow sports. Um, there's, there's a world philosophy to go with all these different things, and we can embrace them. And we need to watch out for the world's philosophy. When you start using things to serve yourself and not to serve God, you have fallen for the world system. And uh, Brian Sermon gives more, more examples. And again, I would encourage you to listen to that message. Now you can say, oh, it's the heart that matters. Uh, let's not get too worked up over this problem of worldliness. But it is a heart issue. That's the point. This is a heart issue. Uh, love is not just a feeling. If you feel good about God and His Word and His Holy Spirit, that's great. But if you're making choices that are dictated by the world's pattern then you, and you're feeding those lusts, you're not loving God. John MacArthur, um, talking about who I still appreciate even though I disagree with him about limited atonement, uh, talking about flirting with the world, he, he gets pretty stern here. I'll read this. He says, you don't love it. You're not married to it. You've been separated from it. You've come into the family of God, and yet it is alluring to you because of your fallenness. What am I talking about? What books do you love the most? If you love any worldly books more than the word, if you love any worldly songs more than the hymns, if you love worldly people more than people of God, if you love worldly activity more than worship, if you love any endeavor more than service to Christ, if you seek any reward more than well done, good and faithful servant, you are being seduced to flirt with the world. Okay, so how do we obey this command? I've got a few points here. The world is, it is attractive. It appeals to the, to the flesh. The people in it look really happy and successful. How do we keep from falling in love with this anti-God system? I've got four points here, and I'm sure you could come up with more. The first one is, we need to love God. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If your love for God is weak, your attraction to the world will be strong. We must understand how much we need God and what He did for us on the cross. And this is agape love again. So we need to be involved in service, be active in serving God, 
I think those who are actively serving God struggle with the world less. Second point is hope in God. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So we're all pretty rich here this morning, just being Americans. And it's great to enjoy appropriately what God has given us. That's great. But riches can steal your hope and become the focus of your hope. And the world will tell you that's where you ought to be hoping in. That's what you should be hoping in. And if you fall for that, you have fallen for the world's philosophy. But if you continue to hope in God and realize that riches are uncertain, you are breaking the world's pool on you. And earthly riches are a bad investment because the world is passing away. Third point I would have for you is to practice restraint. There are some things you should stay away from just because of what they're bent on feeding. Stay away from some things. Monitor other things. And ask the question, why am I doing this? And and I guess I would like this to be a a big takeaway for you this morning. That uh, you would ask the question, what exactly am I doing this for? What's the point? Why am I buying those $1,500 shoes? Uh, why, Why am I working these extra hours? Okay, and there can be legitimate answers to some of these, but th- these are questions we need to ask. Why am I spit polishing every inch of my car? Uh, why am I checking my bank account so often? Why exactly am I reading this book? Why am I on ESPN so much? Why am I in front of the mirror so long? You know, girls get extra allowance, but you guys, anything over nine seconds is questionable. Um, realize when you're being generous with yourself, just be honest, when you're, you're being kind of generous with yourself and coming up with a reason for why you're doing something, just be honest with yourself and ask, am I being led by the Spirit? Is, is that what's leading me into this decision? Fourth point would be to listen to your brothers or sisters. Let's listen to each other. Let's be open to outside guidance. Um, I don't have all the perspective. Turns out there are more people, there are people more discerning than I am. We talked about the different levels of maturity here at the beginning. Um, Spiritual children aren't going to have the the amount of maturity as spiritual fathers. Spiritual fathers are going to be more discerning. It's not just you and God. It's not just every man's an island and each Christian lives in a bubble with his own personal copy of the Holy Spirit. It's not how it works. We do affect each other. We learn from each other. And I think a strong church is a lot like uh, the Greek hoplites in the Battle of Marathon, they stood in a tight phalanx formation, which means each soldier had a weapon in his right hand and a shield in his, in his left. Not two weapons and not two shields. Weapon in his right hand, a shield in his left. And they stood in tight formation. Uh, the shield in your left hand protected your left side and the right side of the guy next to you. So there was overlap. And it was a fearsome formation. They defeated a Persian army that was much larger. In the same way, we need to stand together and protect each other. Each of us, no matter who we think we are, we need to be open to outside guidance. And and we need to give that same guidance to each other. 
So don't tell the, the guy on your right side that, oh, you're kind of crowding my space. Move off a little bit, would you? Because you need that shield to cover your right side. Um, and if, if someone is concerned about something that you're involved in, something's concerned, if someone is concerned about something you're involved in, don't get all prickly and say, oh, you're just getting all legalistic. Because you need that hoplite shield to cover your right side. Don't get all jittery and hopping around. You're supposed to be standing strong in the phalanx. Jumpy hoplites get stabbed by Persians. How's that for encouragement? So let's listen to each other. So just to recap, the, the greatest commandment of all is that we love God with an undivided heart. And that demands that we not love the world, not even in the smallest degree. What I really want you to take away from this is that love, loving the world is a hard issue. It's a hard problem. Worldliness is a hard issue. And let's, it's, not, it's not legalistic to be worried about loving the world. Love is not just a feeling. It's not just talk. It's behavior. And don't just coast along and make choices that, that suit you. Ask yourself about the choices you make. Does this fit into God's plan? Is this following Christ's footsteps? Is this what he would do if he were me? That verse said, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And may God help us to love him above everything else. God bless you.